Well, good morning. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. If you would, go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. I'll, I'll read this text for us, pray, and then uh, we will get to work and ask the Lord to speak to us today, because that's what we need, isn't it? We need to hear from him. Here's what it says, Romans 4, verses 9 through 10. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. This is the word of the Lord, and we say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess we are in great need. It doesn't take reading the news that long to know the dire circumstance that we find ourselves in. Even though we may have convinced ourselves that we have progressed past a lot of the problems of the past, we are still a people, a humanity, a country, a city, a neighborhood in great need. And so, Father, what we need more than anything is truth and the beauty of you, our God. And so we thank you that you're faithful that you are a God who is there and you are not silent. And so may we be a people who listen. May we be a people who submit. May we be a people who obey. May we be a people who worship. May we be a people who honor you in spirit and in truth today in our worship. So we ask that you'd help us in this. As we come to your word, we're thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your truth. And we say all of this in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Within our passage today, uh, Paul, who is the writer of Romans, if you remember, I mean, we've only been in Romans for about a year, so hopefully we now know that Paul has written this letter to the first century church made of a collection of Christians, both Jews and Gentiles. Um, and he starts with another question. If you remember in the context, he's already asked a question, and now he's asking another one. Let's look at it again in verse 9. He asks this, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised. Now, before we get into Paul's understanding and his point for the circumcised and uncircumcised, we ought to refresh our recollections and remember what this blessing is all about. What blessing is he referring to? Well, a couple of things. From chapter 3 on into chapter 4, Paul has been addressing this idea of justification by faith. His, his Jewish readers, what Paul understood, Paul knew that his Jewish readers would have a very hard time with grace. They would have a very hard time assenting to this idea. And so one of the things that he is wrestling with is their trust and their celebration of a gospel of grace. Remember, he's already addressed this objection that he, even in writing this letter, is supposing that they're going to have. They're going to say, well, grace is a new thing. People used to be saved by their works, and now, because of Jesus, we are saved by Jesus' work. But Paul dismantles this presumption by explaining that both Abraham, their great father, and David, their great king, were both beneficiaries of grace. They were saved by grace, so grace cannot be a new thing. Contextually, then, that's the blessing. Salvation, righteousness, justification are a work of grace. Grace is the blessing. And in verse 6, Paul even explains, so if you move your eyes up just a few verses, it says that David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. That's the blessing. Grace is the blessing. Or as he put it in verse 5, that God justifies the un. 
godly. The ungodly do not justify themselves. We do not justify ourselves. So what Paul is essentially saying, if we can put it just in the simplest of terms, is that Jesus saves people. People do not save people. People do not save themselves. Jesus saves people. People like you. Can I get an amen? People like me. Can I get an amen? People like us. People like Paul's first century Jewish readers and Paul's first century Gentile listeners as well. See, the blessing is grace, that Jesus saves people. At this point, Paul then anticipates another objection that his readers likely would have had, which is directly connected to the first. So, we, we can sort of imagine in our mind's eye what Paul is, is guessing, that if you are cool now with grace, you're going to go to something a little bit more central to your personhood and your identity. He, he starts to confront this idea of circumcision. So that, that Jews may have just said, okay, Paul, we'll give you that. We're saved by grace, but we still need to be circumcised, right? So th- this is what Paul begins to anticipate, that, that his audience would concede the fact, okay, works don't save us, Jesus saves us, but we still got to get circumcised on the eighth day, right? That's too central, that's too important. So what, what Paul then begins to address, and, and this is why he says it, that is this blessing, or puts it in this question, is this blessing or is grace for the circumcised or the uncircumcised? He's asking this question because he knows this is what's on their mind. You know, you know how your, your mom and dad or maybe a close friend or a spouse or even one of your children, they know what you're thinking before you speak. They, they don't need you to return. They don't need you to respond. They're like, I know what you're thinking, and let me go ahead and cut you off at the pass and tell you logically why your conclusion is inappropriate and not really good. Now, in our fallibility, we may be wrong, but in Paul's inspiration of the Holy Spirit in writing the very words of God, he's absolutely on point. The best way for us to understand this objection before we move forward, this is why they're differentiating. For the Jews, obeying the law was one thing. Circumcision was another. Because circumcision was not, in their mind's eye, an action. It was a part of their identity. So essentially what they've done is say, okay, Paul, we, we will, we'll give you that we're not saved by works, but our identity and circumcision is so central to who we are, we must still do that to be a part of the family of God. See, circumcision was instituted by God as a sign of the covenant between God and his people in Genesis 15. In fact, it's so connected to the Jewish identity that they were known as the circumcision, and they called other people outside of the fold the uncircumcised. So they were even known by this particular nomenclature and this particular identity mark. So what's more, if you are ethnically Jewish, or you're born into a Jewish family, but you don't get circumcised, what, what the Lord says in Genesis 15 is that you're essentially cut off from his people. You are not part of the people of God if this particular mark is not upon you. So in order to correct his reader's thinking, to understand what they're talking about, Paul once again goes to the Old Testament scriptures. And church in the square, can, can we just remember today that if we want to know truth, we've got to go to the word of God. We've got to go to the word of God. And Paul has modeled this over and over again. There's a question, and he doesn't go, well, here's what I feel about that. Here's what I think about that. Here's what the warm fuzzies inside of my internal personhood is going to, like, tell you. No, no, no. He says, let's look at the book. Let's look at Genesis. Let's look at God's word. That's a good friend. That's a good group. That's a a good family. That's That's a good church. But when we have a question, we go to God's word. Are you with me yet in this today? This This is what we do. This isn't the way we used to do it. This isn't the way your parents did it. This isn't what the, the way that, that, that uh, religious people used to do it. We still go to God's word. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's, it's, it's clearer than anything. It is truer. It's more beautiful. It is accurate. It is worthy of our attention. So that's what Paul does. Look at verse 9 and 10 again. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? 
For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him, Paul asks? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So Paul's answer to this secondary objection is essentially no. Circumcision is not necessary for salvation. Or if we put it positively, that the blessing or grace is for the circumcised and the uncircumcised, for the Jew and the Gentile. Jesus saves people, not circumcision, is what Paul is saying. Now, Paul bases his logic, his exegesis, his understanding of God's word on this idea that Abraham was circumcised, their father, the founding father of their faith, circumcised after he had received the blessing of grace or or after he was justified or made righteous by God. And this is what he does. He goes back to the story of Abraham. In fact, the distance between Abraham's faith being counted as righteousness or rather his justification by grace through faith happens in Genesis 15, 6. And the distance between that and Abraham being circumcised in Genesis 17, 24 is 14 years. 14 years. And so when we really think about it, Paul's question in its historical context is hilarious. I know it may not be one of those like deep belly laughs that you like think is really, really funny, but it's, it's laughable, this question, which came first? Which of these things happened first? It's not even close. It's not even a question. It's like looking at my nine-year-old and two-year-old and go, which one came first? You tell me. One is a beautiful, brilliant nine-year-old girl who stands about yay high. The other is a two-year-old who screams all the time. You tell me which one came first. See, see Paul is saying, this is so distant. It's as, it's as if, it's as if God knew this was going to be a problem, and he put 14 years between the two just so we would get it right, and yet we still get it wrong. Abraham was justified a decade and a half before he was circumcised. So here's what Paul is is saying. Abraham was not circumcised in order to be justified. That Abraham was, rather, justification was the reason, the grounds for his circumcision. It was a seal. It was a sign of a reality that had already taken place. We might say it this way, knowing that circumcision is a matter of identity. Our identity is not the foundation of our salvation. Our salvation is the foundation of our identity. Are you tracking with me? That our identity is not the foundation of our salvation. Your salvation, church in the square, is the foundation of your identity. So when we go into our mind's eye, when we go into our heart and think, who am I? What am I like? The ground that everything is built on is Jesus Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, where he is fully authoritative over the living and the dead, all things present and all things to come, that he has redeemed your heart and soul. That's the bedrock of who you are. If you want to know who you are, we need to go to this idea that Jesus saves people. He saved even me. That's who I am. Who you are is defined by the fact, the reality that God has saved you. There's two implications to this. What's Paul getting at? What what do we do with this? First, you can take absolutely no credit for your salvation. Zero. You can take no credit for being made righteous. No works make you righteous. No mark of identity makes you righteous. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, that man in sin, is always anxious to claim a little credit for himself. Always looking for a little credit. So essentially what the Jews do here, they're like, okay, it's not works, but it's our circumcision, right? 
It's, a, it's as if they're, they're trying to find some credit, something that they do or something that they are that gives them credit for salvation. And we can take no credit whatsoever. Justification is and always has been a complete and utter work of the benevolence and grace and power and mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus saves people, and Jesus saves all kinds of people is what Paul is saying. So stop trying to take credit for your life. Stop trying to take credit for your righteousness, for this blessing of grace. In fact, I think Jonathan Edwards, the great 18th century American preacher, puts it uh, best when he says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You can contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Jesus saves people. That's the first implication. Secondly, all this being true, we're left with a lot to consider. Let's keep something in, in, in mind that, that's so obvious we might miss it. Paul is writing to both Jews and Gentiles who are a part of the same church, who are a part of the same church family. There are circumcised Christians in first century Rome. There are uncircumcised Christians in first century Rome, and they're a part of the same church family. So before Paul writes this letter, can you imagine how confu- much confusion there was and chaos around grace and salvation and what they were saying about this diverse family of God that now was taking hold of the first century world there in Rome? They're both saved by Jesus, but they're learning to live and, and do life together as the church. This is where things get kind of messy, don't they? They're both saved by Jesus, and yet with these unique identifying markers are learning to, to live together in community. See, Paul is writing a diverse group who are a part of the same church, same church family, navigating some central themes of identity and of personhood. This brings us to consider that, that Jesus doesn't just save people. Jesus saves a people. He makes a new human family. The power of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus makes a whole new human family, which is comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, circumcised and uncircumcised. It's what Bible scholars and teachers call uh, the difference between a vertical uh, reconciliation and a horizontal reconciliation. Vertically, we are reconciled to God. Horizontally, we are reconciled one to Another theologian, Fleming Rutledge, put it this way on Twitter. Every now and then Twitter gets it right, and we we praise God for that. She said, justification for Paul, the apostle, meant not only acquittal before God's bar of justice, but also rectification, that God was making right what was wrong. See, the gospel is not just that you can be made right before God. It's that all things and all peoples can be made right in God. In Christ. You see, we, we are not only at odds with God, we are at odds with one another. We, we've witnessed this in our city, in our world, haven't we? Over and over again this past week, this past year, this past season. Things are not going well. Especially between people who look and think and act differently from one another. See, we're separated from God and we are separated from one another. This is the problem that plagues every page of Scripture. This is the issue that has made a home in every single human heart. This is the curse that crushes every single community. This is the reality that ravages every new generation. So what is our hope? From where does our help come? This is what Paul addresses not only here in Romans 4, but also in really the entire letter of Galatians and Ephesians as well. And I think we get it wrong so often that we have to be so careful to not move too quickly past this, that we have been made a new family under Abraham his lineage through the work of Jesus. So to put it bluntly, if people do not have to be circumcised to be saved, that means they don't have to become Jewish. That means that they don't have to change from Gentile to Jew. If the uncircumcised reader then does not need to become Jewish in order to be justified, 
That means they are free to remain very much in every sense of the word who God made them to be. This is the point of Galatians uh, 3, verses 28 and 29. Let's read it together. Turn to the right, just a couple books of the Bible. Go through First and Second Corinthians, if you're still in Romans. And then you'll hit Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 and 29. Get to Ephesians like I just did. Go back to the left. Galatians 3, verse 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. While some, I think, read this passage as sort of like the colorblindness of God, that in God's kingdom, he doesn't see color, he doesn't see gender, apparently, or status with the state, we, we should understand that Paul is saying exactly the opposite of that. Paul is saying that in Christ, the primary and foundational marker of personhood is Jesus, not ethnicity, not status with the state, not gender. Rather, all are one in Christ and are heirs of Abraham. But the, the, other, as, the other aspects of our identity that, that Paul lays out here and any that we could name today are, are not primary, but hear this. They are true, they are real, and they are valuable because God made you and made us this way. This is why the people of God is meant to be and has always been meant to be a diverse family. Like God himself, we are one and yet we are many. We are providentially diverse. But let's think about this a little bit more practically. Larry Hurtado in his book, Destroyer of the Gods, which is one of the most fantastic titles of any book that I have read in my entire life, Destroyer of the gods, he essentially communicates this idea that Gentile converts remained Gentiles. This is so basic today that we, that we miss it. The tension then of discipleship in the early church was trying to dissect not how did these people become Jewish, but rather what's the difference between cultural idolatry and cultural identity? What's the difference between cultural idolatry and cultural identity? He explains, Hurtado does, that followers of Jesus who previously worshipped a plethora of Greek and Roman deities had to leave behind these practices and these gods for the sake of exclusively worshipping Jesus. But they were also never meant to exchange these pagan practices for Jewish ones. And here's the tension in Rome. They were meant to leave behind anything that kept them from Christ, but their ethnicity and their biology were not the things that kept them from Christ. Those were the things actually reflecting the image of God to the world. Hurtado says they remained what they were ethnically and biologically while being engrafted into the spiritual family of Abraham. So everyone made righteous in Christ is saved by grace through faith. Scholar Esau Macaulay explains when he's thinking about this particular passage in Galatians, the question that runs from the end of Galatians, all, or from the beginning all the way through the end of Galatians, is who are the rightful heirs of the promise of Abraham? Paul, in this particular verse, points to us, point is that being a Jew does not make you more of an heir to the promise of Christ than being a Gentile. In other words, what Jesus saves people, Jesus is the one who does this. Both circumcised and uncircumcised, people with a Jewish ethnic heritage and religious background, people with a Gentile or Roman ethnic heritage and religious background. But let's keep thinking about this. this. This presses right into the way that we do church today because people start doing church in the middle of all of that, in the middle of all of that diversity, in the middle of all of that need for discipleship. What's the difference? I mean, this is hard. 
What's the difference between my identity and idolatry? I need my brothers and sisters in Christ often to help me with that. I got a ton of blind spots about that. What, what is it that I do because my parents were raised in the South? What is it I do because I'm white? What is it I do that because I'm a 38-year-old man with four children and I'm tired? I'm really tired, right? So what are the things in my life that actually are expressed because of those things? And what is it that are expressed because I'm worshiping those things? Because those things are central to me because my children are central to me, because my whiteness is central to me, because my Southern heritage is central to me, right? Because my, my being an American is central to me. I need my brothers and sisters to help me with this. And this is what God's word does. Brings us together under the banner of, of Jesus' church. And we've got to wrestle with these things. See, Jewish people came into this church having grown up with this idea there is one God, the Hebrew God of the Bible, and we follow his power and his laws. And, and then all of the Gentiles were coming from this plethora, this sort of smorgasbord of, of worldviews and ideas, this syncretism of bringing everything together into sort of one worldview. And can you imagine? Like, this is like a collision course. Like, this isn't going to go well. It's, it's as if Jesus, like, didn't think through this. And he did. And here's what we think. We think he didn't think through that, that all of these people with all these different worldviews, all this different historical, ethnic, cultural, biological baggage are going to come in, and they're all going to have to worship Jesus. They're going to have to pick songs together, right? They're going to have to actually sit under the same leadership together. Doesn't this give you great hope? Sometimes we're, a lot of us are millennials in here, right? So we think we're the first to do everything, right? We are not the first people to try to be a multi-ethnic church. I give you Romans, I give you the history of the early church. This is what God has always called us to do. See, Jesus saves people, but he also saves a people, a new human family made of every tribe, tongue, and nation. See, while this identity, this transformation of God's work happens instantly, what the scriptures teach us is we've got to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. See, I I know that I have been saved by grace through faith, that my destination is with God forever because of Christ. I know that this is my family, no matter what. Every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group are going to worship King Jesus one day. That's true instantly. And yet we got to work that out, don't we? As much as I got to work out grace in my life, we've got to work out what it means to be the diverse people of God right here and right now. And we know this leads to problems. See, diversity leads to problems that homogeneity knows nothing about. Knows nothing about. But the diverse church sees something of the beauty of the kingdom that homogeneity will not see until Jesus comes back. See, Jesus saves people, and Jesus saves a people. He saves people for each other. Now, few of us, I think, here's where it gets hard. Can I just preach to you for a couple more minutes? I've got a little bit more time. Thank you. From the young one in the back. I think very few of us have a problem knowing that one day, as Revelation teaches us, that every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship together. I think we have no problem believing that heaven is diverse. We just don't like that our church is supposed to be today. We have no problem with believing that God saves for himself a people tomorrow, but we don't want to deal with the difficulty and the discomfort today. Historically, I think we've rejected, this is this, his, his, this horizontal reconciliation. We've rejected it two ways. And my white brothers and sisters in the room, stay with me for a minute because I'd like to blame us for both of these reasons, okay? Two reasons why. We separate or we assimilate. We separate or we assimilate. This is how we deal with not having to deal, right? With being a diverse church. First, separation 
leads to countless denominations and ethnically specific congregations. Now, we may think this is happenstance, but when we look at the history of our country, it was those white settlers who came in with this religious Christianity, right, that actually separated people groups from one another and say, you do your church your way, we'll do our church our way in this particular country. We thought it was about religious freedom, but it was only religious freedom to a particular group of white people who are coming and saying, this is what God looks like and this is what God acts like. See, this is early on in our nation's story. We've got to deal with this. We've got to name it. We've got to look at it. So, so separation really is something that the white church has come up with, and yet now the white church is criticizing a lot of ethnic uh, churches for being the ones who have separated, all the while looking at the history. We have to look at ourselves. I have to look at myself to blame. Secondly, assimilation. Assimilation is this idea of that we all come together under some bland common denominator. Now, in our country, what that bland common denominator is, is, is the expression of whiteness in what we sing, what community looks like, who our theology is, the people that we quote in our sermons and the ways that we form our ideas. And we are asking other people to simply adopt and adapt to these particular things. Now, you might think, well, pastor, that's really, you know, not cool that white people have to, you know, embrace these sorts of sinful histories. Like, let's just, let's just call it what it is. This is Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is calling it what it is. One of the reasons that we will not see and have not seen more redemption, more healing, more, more of, of God's work coming into our city is because of light. a lot of white Christians are trying to skirt any sort of obligation or any sort of culpability and are refusing to name sin and go, can't we all just get along? Not till we confess sin. We can't get along until we confess sin. The, the separation we see in the church, the assimilation that we've come up with, these are things that have rejected oneness and diversity. In other words, it's a rejection of the gospel. We have only believed in a gospel that can save a person, but not a people, when we act like this. The problem plagues every passage of Scripture. Every issue of the human heart. This, this curse has crushed every community, and it ravages every new generation. So what is our hope? From where does our help come? Well, Paul points us to the cross of Christ. He speaks of the uncircumcision of gen, or Gentiles, about their salvation to God as a reconciliation into the family of God. He, he says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. See, one of the reasons this continues to plague us, and I can speak for myself in this as a white 38-year-old pastor who has grown up in the church, one of the reasons why I have failed to rightly embrace and name what Paul is doing in Ephesians 2 is he's naming the racial tension, he's naming the problems, he's naming the hostility. One of the reasons that I failed to do is I don't think I have a culture. I don't think I come with any religious baggage. I don't think I come with any cultural um, I, I, identity markers or idolatry. I think I come as normal and everybody else is sort of distinct from this. We even see this like in our supermarkets, like when there's an ethnic aisle, like what is that? As if like ethnicity is not somehow touching all of the things, as if culture is not touching all the things. This, this is where it's ex expressed even in our world. What, what, what we have to do if we want to truly become the people of God, we have to admit how we have not lived like the people of God. We have to confess our sin and know that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from a guilty conscience. So we have to name and confess division. See, a lot of people want unity, but nobody wants to confess culpability in the division. And Christians don't do that. 
Christians name these things. We speak about these things because he himself is our peace. Not my culture, not my ethnicity, not my, my background. Jesus is my peace. He grants to each of us a familial status with the Father, one that only Jesus really deserves. And in making this new family, he makes peace with God and peace between us. Do you see, if Jesus only saves a people, uh, only people, then oneness and diversity don't matter. We naively believe one day we'll, we'll be one, but now it's kind of hard, so let's just separate. We believe that one day every tribe, tongue, and nation will, will worship King Jesus in their own native tongue, but right now, could you just speak English and act white? Right now, could you just assimilate, because that's easier for me. See, we believe somehow that the gospel is going to do something tomorrow that is incapable of doing today. What is that, church? What is that in my heart? It's self-protection. It's denial. It's more sin upon sin. And unrepentant sin, church in the square, always leads to more sin. It never heals itself. Only Jesus heals us. See, in living this way, we've only believed half the gospel. And if we only believe half the gospel, we've denied the whole gospel. Jesus saves people, and Jesus saves a people. Then, if this is true, what we have is the power to not only experience vertical reconciliation with God, but horizontal reconciliation with one another. we got to work some of this stuff out in community. We, we need to do this in group. We need to, do, we need to name these things in group. We need to name these things as a leadership team. We need to name them as a church, a church family filled with circumcised people and uncircumcised people, black, Latino, white, Asian, native, all the tribes, tongues, and people that God would, would, would send us actually begin to sing to King Jesus right now in the way that we're going to. See, a church that actually believes that heaven is a reality of the future also believes that Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. A Christian is one who believes not just that heaven is going to show up one day, but that in Christ heaven has already come. And therefore there is a power that is alive and well in the people of God. And so we say, oh God, make us one. Oh God, make us many. Make us more and more the people that you're calling us to be right here and now for your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.